The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And you've made us your people as we sang, we are who you say we are, even if we feel otherwise. We take our clue from your word. We look at your actions for us and we say, thank you, you've made us your people. And so, Father, will you now feed us with your word? You've claimed us as your own, you've made us your children, and now we ask you, would you take up the responsibility of feeding us and growing us up like a good parent to us, like a father who cares for us as you do? That's who you say you are, that's who you say we are, and so grow us up, we pray. Use this passage in front of us, Lord, to teach us and train us. Help us to weigh it properly, to hear it well, and use it to teach us and train us and grow us up. We trust ourselves to you and say thank you, Lord. Amen. If you're a parent, you've probably been here, and if you're not, if you haven't been a parent, or if you're not a parent any longer with kids at home, think about this. You're sitting on the sofa, looking at the television, and the person on the television is talking and saying and speaking, and you're kind of saying, hmm, ah, I don't know about that. Or acting and doing, maybe clothes are coming off, maybe something's going on there, you think, whoa, I don't know about that. Ah." And then it occurs to you, and you look over, and your 10-year-old What do you do next? She'll probably figure it out. I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to let that go on. I'll continue to evaluate it myself. I don't know what, I don't know about that. But she's her own individual. She'll certainly figure that out properly herself. Right? No. Of course not. You say, whoa, 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 where's the remote? Click. And maybe what they were doing there, what that person was saying there, and then a conversation ensues. Because, why? Because really my goal in life is to limit your exposures and make you, make you a juvenile and, and utterly dependent and never to teach you to think for yourself and expose you to nothing and shelter you. No, it's because I care for you. And I know there's something going on here that's a threat, that's maybe a danger to you that you probably don't have any tools to deal with. And so I want to shut that off and maybe do some damage control. Right? Because I care for you. Because I care for you. I want to shut that off and maybe if I need to, do some damage control. Bring that mindset into today's passage. And it's important because what we're going to meet here today in 1 Timothy chapter 1, at the very end of the chapter, it's, it's not a very pleasant topic in itself. 
Basically, what we're going to find is this passage telling Christians to be contentious. To fight for something. And we don't like contentious people. And so we really don't want to be contentious people. The whole ethos of of our world, especially with regard to religious belief, is very much one of you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe and let's just live and let live. And we certainly don't want to fight about it. And we're very concerned about those who do, about those who want to use some power to suppress some message or force some message, particularly if it's a religious one. But this passage tells us to be contentious, to insist on sound doctrine. Very important point here. To insist on sound doctrine within the family, within the congregation of the church. We are not, 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 not to be about forcing the proper interpretation of and the proper application of the Bible out in the general population of the world out there. Openly talk about it? Sure, yeah, of course. Share it, discuss it, attempt to persuade, reason with others, try to show the wisdom in it, invite people to trust it. Absolutely, of course, yes, but not force it. Out there, out there in the public sphere, we are very much okay with. You believe what you believe, that's up to you. I'm not saying that makes everything right. I'm just saying that's up to you. But as for me in my house, as for us, we are not at liberty to choose which things we would like to believe and which things we would not. We are under the authority of a father who has told us this is true. This is the way to teach. This is, the way to, this is what to pass on. This is what to, is to be accepted, to be lived out. And within this congregation of the church, within this family, we are to be entirely intolerant of false doctrine. We are to fight for the truth and not allow what's false. To turn it off and, if need be, do some damage control. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we've mentioned this a few times already, he calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth, which means the church supports and upholds what is true and rejects what is false because ideas have consequences. God knows that, and God wants good, blessed, gracious consequences to come upon his people. And so he wants the ideas that feed us, the ideas that we look at, that come in and and fill us. He wants those ideas to be the truth, to keep a bright light burning for our path, keep the gospel alive and clear and known and seen as beautiful so that we trust and depend on, lean on what's right. That's true. That's his sweet goal. He's, act, he's acting like a good father who, who is looking for the remote and wants to turn it off. That, that's the idea that we have to keep in mind as we look at this passage and, and find in it the call to fight for sound doctrine, to be contentious for it. Not because fighting's good, but because protection is. So that's what we're going to look at today. This is the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20 and then make two observations from it. 
This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. End of 1 Timothy 1. Two observations. Here's the first. The church must always be willing and able to fight for sound doctrine. The church must always be willing and able to fight for sound doctrine. Verse 18 begins with Paul bringing up the charge or the exhortation that he'd entrusted Timothy. In order to understand what he's talking about, we need to realize this links us back to verse 3 where we saw there Paul, Paul mentioned that there were certain ones, certain people who were alive and well and at work in Ephesus, false teachers, and Paul had told Timothy, he charged him, he sent him and told him to stay there in Ephesus to confront and to stop them, the false teachers, these certain ones. And then as, as Paul's kind of stream of consciousness, Paul, Paul's always like this, one thought leads to another, stream of consciousness leads him to talk more about the false doctrine or really more about good doctrine, what he, what he wants to be taught in the church, what God wants taught in the church. So he kind of goes off on that path. But now in our passage, he's coming back to that charge that he gave to Timothy and saying less about the false doctrine and more about the stop them part of that charge. You must stop them. That's the good fight, the good warfare that Timothy must fight. That's the charge I gave to you. That's why you're still in Ephesus. That's what you're there for. You must fight, must contend for sound doctrine and against falsehood in the church. Now, I'm not talking about out in the world. Again, we're not responsible for what people put on TV or on Instagram or whatever. We're about the family. And this is your responsibility, Timothy. I put you there to put a stop to this. That's your job. A responsibility that accords with, that matches middle of verse 18, the prophecies previously made about you. Chapter 4, what, what we'll see here is that when Timothy was first kind of set apart for ministry service, initially there were some prophecies spoken over him. Some, some people made some statements over him in, in the, the power of, of God's Spirit that in some way equipped him for work. So maybe, we, we don't know, but maybe God spoke or promised some strength or maybe he promised some unique insight or some wisdom or a special anointing for preaching or teaching. We don't, we don't really know what was said. But whatever it was, what Paul's getting at here is that those prophetic announcements and pronouncements back then, they were real, true words from God back then promising you something that you would need in the future. Well, that's for now. So what was said for you back then is for this purpose right here. By them, then by these prophecies, he says, you can fight this good fight. What you're going to need, he said you'd have, that's now. So trust that, step into it and fight. That's the urgent need in the church 
at the moment. That's why Timothy's there. And it's always a great need in every church, in every moment. And to understand this, let's be clear on what he's getting at. This is, this is a fight. It's, it's a waging of a warfare that is not physical or violent. Really, some in church history have messed that up. It is not physical or violent. But it's called a fight. It's called warfare because it's contentious. There's difficulty. There's struggle here. There's going to be conflict. It's a struggle to stop, to refute dangerous, destructive error in the church. So I'm not just talking about mistakes. Dangerous, destructive error in the church. As determined by the proper understanding of the written word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament alone. Only. That, that's our standard. So whatever is false is whatever is not true. And Paul never goes into a list of everything that's false because if you think about that, there'd be no end of the list. The call really is, here's what I'm teaching. Here's what's true. Teach this and oppose everything else. But in saying that, of course, there's a continuum of, of distance from the truth and a continuum of, when I say dangerous and destructive, some things are more dangerous and some things are more destructive. So one helpful way to think about this, a helpful way to think about false doctrine, sound doctrine, and contention is to think of it, some have used this idea of a, of a target with concentric circles. This isn't foolproof, but it's a helpful way to think about it. A target with concentric circles, and at the center, we're going to find things that are more central, more important, vital, for which we fight. And as we move out from the center, we're going to find things that are really important, somewhat important, interesting, curious, for which we don't fight. We just discuss. But at the center, what we've got is this, at the very center, is the gospel itself and everything necessary for it. Because without that, you're not a Christian. And without that, the church isn't a church. So here at the center of this, of this circle, we're going to find some things like the full inerrancy of the Bible itself. The full deity of the triune God. The cross atonement of Jesus being the only sufficient basis for salvation. The reality of heaven and hell and judgment and eternal life that's coming. The need for faith in Christ alone, apart from any connection to works. Faith in Christ alone, not faith in Christ plus my works, faith in Christ alone to be saved. That, that's at the circle, the, that's the center of it, and if you miss that, you're not a Christian. So we have to be really, 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 really emphatic about that. And a whole bunch of other stuff that 
we who agree on the center can discuss. There's never any clear delineation in the Bible, but if you understand the basic idea of this circle, we're going to be headed in the right direction. And Paul calls us, God calls us, because God cares for us to contend for the center. To be a contentious people who fight for sound doctrine according to the standard of the Bible. Not according to what other people think or what we think, what the Bible says. So our focus here, if we think about contending for sound doctrine, we must be especially focused on the gospel and everything necessary for it to oppose everything opposed to that and refute what is false. And to refute is more than just to deny something. It's to deny it and to clarify why it's wrong. To explain what's wrong and what's right. So we're going to stop, we're going we're to suppress, we're going to oppose false teaching so that it can't spread. And if and when it does spread... We're going to do damage control and explain, no, actually, this is the truth. And this is why. In public, if it happens in public. In private, if it's in private. But all of those, whether public or private, that's going to involve lots of interpersonally awkward and sometimes frightening settings. Because we're going to be involved in saying no and confronting and contradicting something that others find attractive. And that's never fun. It's never fun. But it's important for the sake of the health of the family. And it is about the health of the family. This is, this is Paul talking to Timothy, but he's not talking to Timothy about Timothy himself. He's talking to Timothy about Timothy's role in the church. So this is for Timothy, for the sake of the church, and it's for all who would be like Timothy, especially this is for leaders, which is why we're going to see leaders in particular are tasked to be shepherds, to be caring for, watching out for, like parents, watching out for the flock. But of course, if we're the congregation, we're thinking, well, that's what the leaders are supposed to be about. That's what we're supposed to be about too. All of us watching out for protecting the flock from harmful false teaching, from false doctrine. The job of all of us, especially that of the leaders. And it is always a need in every church and every moment, this one included. This one included. Which may seem strange to say. That it could be really easy to, to hear this. And, and I suspect that for a lot of us here, what, I, what I'm saying you basically agree with and are kind of wondering why I'm talking to us about it. Well, in part because it's next. <laughs> right? This is, this is the luxury of preaching through the Bible as God wrote it, is that I don't have to really think real hard about what to preach. It's just what's next. But also that means that you don't need to think real hard about what, what to listen to because it was just next. God, through Paul, thought we needed to hear this because he wrote it next. 
So there it is. But it's not just because I'm just in, by habit preaching what's next. It's also because we, yeah, sure, we are a church that is very committed to, that's very concerned about, that's very aware of the, the whole issue that I'm talking about here. We are certainly concerned for sound doctrine, and we try to understand it, and we try to teach it, and we are very concerned to, to apply it and live it out and, and be a people who walk in faith and who walk in love, for sure, absolutely. But the reality is we are just like every other church we are people sitting in a life raft, paddling upstream on the St. Lawrence River, away from Niagara Falls. And the only thing that's necessary to die is for you to stop paying attention to the situation. Pull the paddle out of the water and take a break. And the natural course of events will take care of the rest. You live in an environment where we've got a, a fallen heart and a fallen world and an enemy who very much hates us. who very much wants to program for our destruction. And the only thing that's necessary to plummet is to just stop paying attention to that situation, take the oar out of the water and take it easy for a little bit. It's been said, this quote came up in, our, in a group that I'm a part of on Sunday nights. It's been, I forget who said this, that what the first generation believes, the next generation assumes, and the next generation rejects. Because somewhere in there, they just assume, yeah, that's what we're about, and they take the oar out of the water and begin to drift. And the call to fight, we must be willing to fight so that we always remain the first generation that believes it, that is clear about it, that understands it, that expresses it, that believes it, that trusts in it, that leans on it, that hopes, that embraces it, fights for it. Because the natural course of events, always, we always drift towards error. We do not drift towards the truth. Given the natural course of the world that we live in and the kinds of hearts that we still have. We drift away from true sound doctrine. So we have to be willing to fight for it and always on guard against it. And more than willing, we have to be able to fight for it, which we see there at the end of verse 18. How, how are we to be able to fight? It's possible that as I ask that question, we think about, okay, fighting, and maybe even in our minds, we're, we're kind of going towards situations or contexts or things that we have to do to fight. And it's, it's good to think about that. It's appropriate to think about. And this explains some of, why do we vet elders? Why do we ask elders to write out what do you believe about some things and then put that in front of the whole congregation? Why, why do we, before we teach something in a, in a small group or in a, in a Bible study, why do we first gather that material and look at it? Because it would be hard to fight 
against false doctrine, if we had no idea what was being taught, if you turn on the TV and walk away, you don't have any idea what's going on. It's, it's important to think about those kinds of things, but when I'm talking about able to fight, the passage doesn't actually go in that direction. It's worth thinking about for sure. And explains a lot of what we do, but the passage is actually going in different directions. Asking, answering, how are we able to fight in the heart sense? How are we enabled within to be this kind of contender? It's hard, it's awkward, it's, it's distasteful in many ways. Well, he says there, you wage the good warfare, beginning of verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. Not holding on to the faith. That's what we're asking about. How do you hold on to the faith? We contend we are, we are enabled to fight. We are able to fight holding faith and a good conscience. Depending on God, holding faith, trusting him. And probably for Timothy, that would have included what he just mentioned, the prophecies. I believe that God will give me what I need. But for us, lacking those specific prophecies, we should look generally at who is God and what has he said and what has he done? Who is God and what has he said and what has he done? As I am a person who holds faith, who depends on him, what I find is, setting aside for a minute, is this true and how can I oppose it? What I find is I find a God who is good. I find the God of previous paragraph. I find the God of mercy and grace, the God who is for me. The God who calls out to me, you're mine, I've made you mine, I, I have you, I've bought you in Christ, I am carrying you home, I care for you. And so when the father turns off the TV, the kid might initially say, what? But then says, okay, I, I, I know who you are. I really was interested in that, it was really fascinating, but I'll trust you. When I hold on to faith, something in my heart says, okay, I'll trust him, and I believe that his words are good. And I believe that he'll have me on the other side of this awkward, contentious confrontation. And he'll give me words to say in it. And when we walk in the ways that he has said, there's life. Life will be found there. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. There's something very subtle in, in this one. I find it kind of initially confusing until I think about my actual life and then I say, oh, sure, yeah, of course. When you dip into, when you dabble in, when you embrace sin, and your conscience accuses you and you say, never mind, I'm going to do it anyway. Does your appetite for the truth go up or down? Tell me what you say, Lord. I mean, never mind, but tell me what you say. It goes down, right? Of course it goes down. Dabbling into embracing sin is the sure way to turn the thermostat down on, on the heat in your heart, the desire for God's truth. 
When you slide away into the darkness, you stop wanting the light. And in fact, you begin to kind of rationalize, did God really say, I mean, always, always. The slide away comes before the rationalization. So there's something really subtly wise here. Maintain, hold a good conscience. Walk in obedience. Walk in the light. When God says, here's the way, walk in it. Don't walk away. Don't suppress it. Don't don't deny it. Don't embrace. Don't even dip in. Don't dabble in sin. But hold a clear conscience. Keep short accounts with God. And that, again, is what prepares our hearts and gives us an appetite for God and for God's truth and makes us see it as good and makes us really sensitive to error and makes us really, in the end, willing to say no to what's wrong, what's being taught inaccurately. Hold faith and a good conscience. It's what makes us able and, in fact, then willing to fight for the truth. But some in Ephesus, and always, some did otherwise, and that's what leads us to the second point. The ministry of church discipline is one of the ways the church fights for sound doctrine. The ministry of church discipline is one of the ways the church fights for sound doctrine. And I say ministry of church discipline on purpose because, as we'll see, this really is a ministry. It really is a good, kind service for the church and for any person who may find him or herself under such discipline. And that may seem really odd. It may seem really odd, but it's true, and we're going to see that here. But it may seem odd because, I mean, for a number of reasons. First off, we're Americans, most of us here. Most of us here are Americans, and we worship freedom. Worship it. And so the idea of discipline is, this, is, is hard to buy in the first place. Sounds restrictive and limiting and painful and wrong. But on top of that, we probably all have been some part of either experienced or seen or heard about discipline done poorly in some context. Discipline done in anger, discipline done with manipulation, discipline done with cruelty. Closer to the specific subject at hand, We may even have been a part of or be familiar with some religiously based discipline, even something that calls itself church discipline done by some religion or some cult or some group because religions do this sort of thing. And so you may have been a part of or may have heard of it and may have experienced it. It may have been really heavy-handed. It may have been wrong. It may have been based in error. So... I'm putting like wide disclaimers and all this because I understand that when I say church discipline or when I say the ministry of church discipline, for some of us, gigantic red flags go up immediately. 
I understand that. And I am not trying to say that this passage approves of whatever it is is in your mind. Right? But this passage approves of something that's in the passage. And so that's what we get to kind of try to understand. And at the end of it, we're going to see, and it's a ministry. It's a good thing. So, end of verse 19, these certain ones rejected a good conscience. They are not carefully walking in obedience to God, but rather they are consciously sinning. Not accidentally sinning, not incidentally sinning, not sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting. We all sin. We all sin. We all sin. And the mark of a good conscience, embracing a good conscience, when you, when you sin, you say, and you repent, God help me, and sometimes we'll fall again, get up, God help me. The wrestling with sin, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is not wrestling with sin. They gave up a good conscience. This is wrong. Okay, you say so. I think I'll have another of whatever it was. And by rejecting this, the good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Pretty graphic image of a boat hammered against the rocks, breaking apart. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. And if you don't hold on to a good conscience, faith is gone. Faith's going to go. This is very dangerous. Verse 20, among those certain ones are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Two guys that are named in other places in the New Testament, probably they were, not certain, but they were probably leaders, maybe even elders in the church in Ephesus. He names them because they know them. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And what does Paul, the apostle, do with them? Well, it's important to ask that question. What does Paul do with them? And it's maybe interesting to note, to recall, last week's sermon. Remember last week's passage? A section overflowing with abundant mercy and grace. The great, remarkable patience of God towards sinners whom he sent Christ to save. Sinners like Paul, as Paul recounts for us, a great, the chief sinner, in fact. As he writes this, Paul sees himself as chief sinner. He just taught about it, and he was singing about the mercy of God and his overflowing, bubbling up and rushing down, overpouring grace. That was all the last paragraph. So what is the great chief sinner Paul going to do with sinners like Hymenaeus and Alexander? What a hypocrite, some say. I've handed them over to Satan. Me, I enjoy the mercy of God. Them, I've handed over to Satan. What a hypocrite. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on. We've got to think about this a little bit. I have handed them over to Satan. Paul did not forget what he wrote. 
But when we remember, we got a question, so let's put it right there and hold on to that. Let's follow this through. I handed them over to Satan. Paul issued an official decision. These two are out of the church. Therefore, back into the world, back into Satan's realm, out of God's realm, back into Satan's realm. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's what he pronounced. And though he's not physically present in Ephesus, it's what he expects the congregation there to carry out. And we can tell all this because of the very similar language in this verse with what he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Jot that down and look at it later, but there's similar language. He's not present in the church in Corinth either when he writes that, but he uses some similar language, says what he's done and what he expects them to do. That passage there has much more about this topic of church discipline. We know that's what he has in mind because of the similar language. Hymenaeus and Alexander have rejected a clear conscience. At the very end of verse 20, we can discern that it led them to blasphemy, false speaking about, defaming of God. And so Paul handed them over to Satan. He put them out of the church and expects the congregation to do likewise. In short, he expects the congregation to excommunicate. That word there, ex, think of ex, like exit, go out. Communicate, communion, communication, the communion of the church, they are out of the communion of the church. I put them out of the church, and I expect the church to have no communion with them. No fellowship with them, no embracing of them. I turned off the TV, and the box is blank. There's no longer any communion here. That's what he did. That's what he expects them to do. Now let's bring this back in. How does that square with the last paragraph? Patient, mercy, and grace. How does that, how does that match? God is patient. Abundantly so. But not infinitely so. God is merciful, abundantly so. And he is also just. And like we said last week, do you remember this point from last week? Paul very carefully made this point in verse 14, that the mercy of God for him was because he was ignorant in his unbelief. Not sinning with a high hand, not presumptuously saying, I will just sin. I, I know God says, no, I will do whatever I want to, and then he will forgive me. That's his job. No, 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 no. Such presumption does not belong in the church, does not belong in our hearts. That would make a mockery of righteousness and justice and truth and would falsely teach that God does not care about righteousness and justice and truth. Do whatever you please. He doesn't care. Sin with a high hand. Openly, consciously reject what he says and still enjoy fellowship with him and with his people. No, you cannot. No, you cannot. And so to make that plain to them that no, you cannot enjoy openly and sweetly fellowship with him and with his people 
to make it plain that you cannot enjoy that while claiming, I'm a Christian who's openly walking in sin. Paul says, I put them out to draw a line for them and for us and for the world. To make clear, these two things cannot go together. I've handed them over to Satan. So as to punish them and destroy them? No, not that either. And look here at how church discipline is a ministry, a different aspect of God's patient mercy and grace. It is a ministry. It is a vehicle carrying two people into a congregation and to a world that's watching. God's mercy and grace carried in this vehicle that may seem, in some ways, seems hard to us, but is a, is a tough love. What's the goal in the excommunication? End of verse 20. That they may learn not to blaspheme. The goal ultimately is to teach, to change, to correct them. The goal is to redeem them, to bring them back from blasphemy. The goal is redemptive. The goal is gracious, and so really it's an act of grace. It's a kindness that they don't deserve, so really it's a mercy. It's a ministry to them, let alone to the church that it's protecting from their false doctrine. It's a ministry to them meant to redeem them. It's a ministry to the church meant to protect the church. So how would that happen? Remember the Gospels? The story of the prodigal son. Jesus told a story about a son in his father's house who greatly dishonored him, blasphemed him, we might say, by saying to him, I'd rather you were dead and I had your money now. Can I have it? And the father gave him his money and he left happy and proud. And outside the realm of the experience of the father's love. Did the father still love him? Yes, you read the story, you realize the father is watching daily, watching the road, hoping for him to come back. And when he does, he runs to him delighted. The father still loves him, but he is outside of the experience of his father's love. Away in a faraway land, out in the world where Satan reigns, and all he finds out there eventually, not at first, at first it's high times. But what he finds eventually is this place out here is empty. This place out here leads to death. I'm starving and dying. And I don't have anyone who cares for me out here. I thought I would. I thought I did. But I don't. And Jesus says, and so he came to his senses and said, I remember, I know where there's one who does care for me. I know where there is bread for life. I know where there is love. I remember that. Not here, not out in this realm, back there. And he came home humbled and repentant, and the Father's love welcomed him back. He'd learned not to blaspheme. 
That's the goal of church discipline. Not to punish and destroy. That's going to happen via the natural course of events. The goal of church discipline is to redeem and to teach to bring someone to their senses and bring them back. And so then even to teach to this one sound doctrine and to teach to the watching church sound doctrine and to teach to the watching world sound doctrine. Sin is real and alienation from God is real and mercy is real. Redemption is possible and life can be found. Where? Not out there. Here, come back. Or stay. Church discipline is, is a tough love, but it is a love indeed. It is a hard mercy, but it is mercy. It's one of the ways that the church must, the church is called to the church, must be clear about it, must be willing and able to embrace. It's one of the ways the church fights for sound doctrine. Not the only way, it's just one of the ways. And God calls us to it and equips us for it as we hold on to faith and a good conscience. He wants his good truth to rule in our fellowship because like a loving father, he's concerned about what we take in, what comes in and fills us up because he knows that ideas have consequences. And so he himself is about defending us and opposing the truth and he calls us then to be that way too. For our good, in love, he calls us to this and equips us for it. It's the way we find life. It's the way we serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth for ourselves and for a watching world. It's the way we protect the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. And it's the way we protect it for the future generations. I have a book by Ian Murray called A Scottish Christian Heritage. And it traces out wonderfully and sweetly the work of God in the church and in the nation of Scotland. And on the last page, I went and looked at it this week and I'll spare you the long quote I was going to put in here. But he comments how the gospel came and did wonderful things in Scotland. And it moved a nation to God and moved them to give their best sons and daughters to the ends of the earth, he says. But then the gospel left Scotland. And therefore, the graphic image here, many former beautiful Edinburgh churches are restaurants and dance theaters and movie halls. It's not that buildings are sacred. It's the image of it. We built a great church. And we didn't hold on to the gospel. So it makes a really cool movie theater now. We had a wonderful building where the word of God was preached and, and championed and people, people met God and were moved to follow him even to the ends of the earth and and now it is the coolest restaurant. Buildings aren't sacred. But you get the image. There's a call in that, in that imagery, to, to hold on to something for us now, but also for them. 
that what we believe would also be what they believe and not what they reject. We have to be a church willing and able to fight for sound doctrine and against what is false. So let me pray. Lord, would you so move in us to to make us willing and able for this often uncomfortable contention? Would you do that by moving our hearts, showing us your beauty and moving us to trust you? by empowering us to walk in the truth so that the thermostat doesn't get turned down. A faith-driven obedience. We need that from you by your grace, so please give it to us. Please help us. Make us a people who follow you and embrace sound doctrine. We trust this to you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.